0: And socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Today, we begin round two of the sermon series, Faces of Our Faith, in which we explore overlooked or ignored stories in the biblical narrative and lift up characters that remind us of our role in shaping God's story. This morning, we take a deeper look at Joseph of Arimathea. Next week, the prophet Anna is on deck, and the final Sunday of February, we will talk about Eutychus. Who definitely no one has ever heard of. Will you pray with me? It sounds really good to us, Holy One. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, who trust in the Lord. Everyone wants to be blessed. It's been turned into a hashtag now, an indication of how people are feeling when things are going well, when there is something to happy to report. But according to the prophet Jeremiah, being blessed is grittier than that. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its root by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Heat, drought, code words for trouble and woe, stress, discomfort. We know what the prophet alludes to, for we can name our trials and tribulations one by one, and usually more readily than our blessings. So help us, Holy One, to root ourselves in the soil of your goodness, to be so grounded in love that we will not be carried away by strong winds or wither away when the pressure rises. We need not be afraid. We need not be anxious. We will trust in the Lord, resting in the sure and certain hope that love will see us through with dirt underneath our fingernails we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who though a member of the council had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. In the 1960s, writes theologian Tom Long, An anthropologist exploring a cave in Northern Iraq came across the graves of several Neanderthal men, tombs believed to be nearly 50,000 years old and among the oldest human burial sites ever found. Near the remains were discovered pollen grains from hollyhocks and thistles, silent testimonies that flowers had once been placed next to the bodies Thousands of miles away at Sungir near Moscow was found a cluster of Cro-Magnon graves 30 millennia old in which lie the remains of what appears to be a family. Draped around the bones of the man are necklaces strung with hundreds of painstakingly crafted ivory beads and nearby are tools carved from mammoth bones. The woman's skull is placed on top of the man's grave and next to the man and the woman are the remains of two children. They are buried head to head and around them are scattered more than 10,000 painstakingly carved beads of ivory, several rings and bracelets, a collection of spears and daggers, and the teeth of a fox. Who knows? what happened to cause these deaths so many centuries ago, or what ceremonies accompanied these ancient burials. What we do know is that the flowers, the beads, the rings, and other artifacts bear witness that from the earliest times, human beings have cared tenderly for their dead and approached death with awe. Human death has never been simply a fact, it has always been a mysterious ocean summoning those left on the shore to stammer out convictions about life and to wonder what lies over the horizon. From the beginning, humans have adorned burial places and the bodies of the dead with tokens of beauty and love, symbols that push back the brute facts and display the hunger for meaning in the shadow of death. And this is what we read in scripture today, the story of Jesus' burial, the work done by a few right after his death to make meaning of it and to enact the traditions and the rituals of caring for his body. Generally speaking, we don't talk too much about Jesus' burial which can be explained in part by the fact that the lectionary suggests these details be read only on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, and only from the versions found in the Gospels of Matthew and John, even though Mark and Luke also make note of it. The other explanation is that we prefer to move from the cross to the resurrection real quick. It's likely most of you have heard some version of the sermon, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We don't relish sitting with the grief of death. It can feel as if we are so ready to move on from the crucifixion that we act as if Jesus' body was resurrected directly off the cross. But the gospel writers won't let us forget that there were three days between the cross and the resurrection, they were all invested in getting Jesus' body off the cross and into the tomb, for the obvious reason that the tomb first had to be occupied if it were to later be found empty. Even the Gospel of John, with its mysticism and metaphor-heavy retelling, includes the physical, embodied burial of Jesus. But it is also true that getting the body off of the cross and into the tomb was a matter of head and heart. In ancient Jewish burial customs, for a person to go unburied was a great misfortune. But the reasons behind Jesus' death complicated his burial As Kathleen Corley writes in her book, Women and the Historical Jesus, in ancient Rome, funeral rites were often denied to criminals and traitors. Family members and close associates of the condemned sometimes went to great lengths to secure the remains of their loved ones, either by purchase or by theft. The vast majority of the condemned were no doubt consigned to mass graves or cremations. Indeed, the denial of burial and funeral rites was an important component of the punishment meted out on the condemned. Those executed for treason, particularly if by crucifixion, were more likely to be denied basic burial and funeral rites. Furthermore, Corley continues, the possibility of a family recovering a body at any time would depend on the temperament of the Roman authority in question. To what can we compare this? How do we interpret this in our time and place? Well, as Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors reminds us, an 18-year-old boy named Michael Brown was chased and shot repeatedly by a police officer, Darren Wilson. Later, reports would reveal Mike Brown was unarmed and... The autopsy reports confirm that not only was he shot in the hand and the chest, presumably enough to stop him if he were charging at Wilson, which witnesses dispute, but he was also shot in the top of the head twice. Mike Brown's body was left in the hot Missouri sun for four and a half hours following his murder. Four and a half hours. The New York Times reported neighbors were horrified by the gruesome scene. Mr. Brown faced down in the middle of the street, blood streaming from his head. They ushered their children into rooms that faced away from Canfield Drive. They called friends and local news stations to tell them what had happened. They posted on Twitter and Facebook and recorded shaky cell phone videos that would soon make their way to the national news. Patricia Bynes, a committee woman in Ferguson, noted that Brown's body left in the street for so long sent the message from law enforcement that we can do this to you any day, any time, in broad daylight, and there's nothing you can do about it. In Jesus' day, executions were intended to provide a public display of Roman force to serve as a deterrent to dissent, and the proceedings were hardly intended to facilitate public mourning and normal burial practices. Denying normal burial practices was not just part of punishment for the condemned. It also acted to prevent the creation of a sense of solidarity with the dead if the burial became a means of protest and complaint against those doing the killing. The authorities did not need the dead inspiring acts of insurrection or rebellion. The authorities did not need anyone publicly yelling, may their memory be a revolution about the person they had just killed. So now, now we can see that Joseph of Arimathea had his work cut out for him. Perhaps you thought we had forgotten his name, but he is central in the selection of scripture, and yet we miss him almost completely. It is understandable. Anyone who shares a scene with Jesus often fades into the background, even, in this case, when Jesus is dead. It's hard to move the spotlight. The whole faithful unto death actions of Jesus overwhelms almost everything else. But it would serve us well to look to the examples of those who were with Jesus in his most difficult moments. Joseph of Arimathea seems to be a rather minor character in the Gospels, even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention him, the details are sparse. Luke introduces us to a good and righteous man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. It is also noted that he is a member of the Sanhedrin, or in Greek, the council, the supreme court of chief priests and elders in Jerusalem that interpreted and defended Jewish law, which had sent Jesus to stand before Pilate a few chapters back. Joseph of Arimathea, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action, the text tells us. The other things we know about Joseph of Arimathea also speak to his character. The term for just, which was used by the centurion of Jesus as he watched Jesus die, is now used to describe Joseph. And Joseph stands in a long line of people in Jesus' life who were described as righteous. You remember the infancy narratives that include Zachariah and Elizabeth and Simeon. All described as faithful, righteous people. They welcomed Jesus into life at this birth and then cared for his body in death. What was it that made Joseph of Arimathea act, I wonder? Was it he was was moved by a raging sense of injustice at the death of Jesus? Or did he feel bad for not stopping the Sanhedrin from turning Jesus over to Rome? Or was it simply his commitment to do what was right and decent? Maybe it was a little bit of everything. He was good, after all. Good is sometimes used as a synonym for nice. But there seems to be a little more to goodness than being pleasant or pleasing. Given the socio-historical context, we know Joseph didn't just show up at the coroner's office to collect Jesus' body. Joseph's action was not simply a matter of filing a burial permission form with the relevant authorities. It was an act of great courage and faith. Joseph risked ritual uncleanliness by contact with a dead body, On the eve of one of the holiest days of the Jewish calendar, Joseph risked, perhaps ensured, formal expulsion from the Sanhedrin for this show of solidarity. Indeed, Joseph even risked his life in approaching Pilate, the Roman governor with the power of life and death, who had just condemned Jesus for treason against Rome and would likely be looking with suspicion on anyone who were sowing concern for this dead criminal. It would have been easier for Joseph of Arimathea to grieve privately or to do nothing at all. And yet, he was courageous enough, as we say in our benediction, to risk something big for something good. There is an overlooked phrase in this overlooked story that keeps leaping out to me, a phrase that keeps nudging me uncomfortably. Joseph of Arimathea is described as waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, waiting expectantly to anticipate, look for, watch for, be prepared for. It means to be ready As our Methodist siblings often say, to do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, for as long as ever you can. Whatever else Joseph of Arimathea was, he was ready. Ready to step forward when everyone else was stepping away. Ready to use his resources to make a faithful response when so much was at stake. And it makes me wonder if we can be described as waiting expectantly, people who are prepared and ready for the kingdom of God. And, and what does that mean exactly? I mean, the kingdom of God might seem a little amorphous or a little afterlifey, depending on how you were raised. But we know from the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that the kingdom of God is for earth. The kingdom of God is for us. The kingdom of God is for right now. Waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Waiting for us to embody it. Waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God means being ready to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. Waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God means being prepared to give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, welcome to the stranger, clothe the naked, to care for the sick, and visit those in prison." I suggest to you this morning that waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God looks like downloading the free mobile justice app, which can be used to record and share with the ACLU interactions with law enforcement. And we know how important those videos can be. Ahmaud Arbery is but one example. Waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God means being prepared to step in and do what is compassionate and decent. When all seems lost, when might seems to have made right, when it seems like no good deed goes unpunished. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. May his memory be a revolution.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.MayflowerUCC.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.